13. Um, th- at the beginning of this chapter, it's going to be like, wow, where's he going with this? And, and you, you ever read a chapter of the Bible and go, hmm, okay, I'm just going to try to hang in there with the details as long as I possibly can. And then it turns a corner and you go, oh, that's why it's there. And that's kind of this chapter. We're going to be, re- read down verse four, to four, verse 14 today. And uh, then we're going to get into some really even greater parts of 1 Samuel. So let's read here together. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel. You say, why is that a big deal? Well, the first year there was nothing really happening, at least according to the Lord, that was worth noting. Um, But we'll touch that again another time here a little bit later. So in the second year, uh, he took 2,000 which were with Saul and Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Now, you need to remember, maybe some of you Bible students would remember, how many men, remember when Samuel said, oh my goodness, here comes the Ammonites, and uh, here comes King Nahash, and we got we to gotta muster an army. So I'm going to cut up 12 oxen, I'm going to send them to the tribes and say, hey, I'm going to do this to your cows if you don't come. You remember how many people he summoned? It was huge, remember? 300,000. Right? Now think about that. 300,000 people at his disposal... And he goes, ah, you know, a couple thousand here with me. And then with my son, we'll put a thousand over there and give you, and the rest of you can go back to your tents. All right. So the Bible says in uh, verse three, and Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that were, that were in Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. So he sent a signal and said, look, I want everybody to know what's happened. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. Now, wait a minute. Was that right? Did Saul defeat the Philistines? Or did Jonathan? Ah, now let me ask you a question. If Israel heard that Saul did that, where do you think that source was? Or I should say, who was that source? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, you know where it came from. Then the Bible says they also heard that Israel also was an abomination, had an abomination with the Philistines, and the people were called together after Saul together. And that word abomination there literally means to stink. In other words, the Philistines were cohabitating. They had no problems. They weren't being aggressors. And by Saul's order, and that's how you get the idea that Saul is the one that said, I'm the one that actually is responsible for this. Jonathan was ordered to do this. Jonathan goes and he kills a thousand Philistines, and Saul takes the credit And as soon as that sounded abroad, the Philistines go, now, wait a minute. We didn't do anything to you. We're just minding our own business. We we, we, we weren't aggressors. And and you came and you killed all of these Philistines that were in Gibeah. Now we have a problem. Okay. Now the reputation of Israel has been tarnished. Now, look at verse 5. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen. By the way, 30,000 chariots would be like today, 30,000 Abram 1 tanks. Okay? So this is, they're bringing out the heavy guns. 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched a mishmash eastward from Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, I would be too, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews were so scared, they went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people 
followed him trembling. Now think about it. How many people did Saul have? Huh? He had 3,000. He only had 2,000 with him, 1,000 with Jonathan. And you have as many people as the sound of the seashore and 10 times that amount just in chariots. Okay? Now you know why people were shaking. The Bible says the word is trembling. And why some of them were like, see you later. I'm not even staying in town. I'm going over to the Jordanians. You guys can have this, whatever's happening. All right? That's the context of what we're about to study today. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled Foolishness or Faith. And let's pray. God, thank you for your word. As we open your word this morning, I pray that you would, God, actually speak to each and every one of us. I even ask that you'd speak to me. And God, in order for that to happen, uh, Lord, we have to be still and clean and have our ears willingly ready to listen and obey. And so as we do so, we pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd help me to get out of your way. And Lord, that you would just fill me as your vessel and use me for your glory. Bless these that have come today, those that have joined us online. Encourage them, I pray, through your word. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. You may be standing. Thank you, sitting. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for so long. Um, sin makes a fool of us all, doesn't it? I'll make that statement again. Sin makes a fool of us all. I remember specifically in seventh grade, um, we had at that point you had got to have multiple teachers, and I was in Mr. Gray's math class, and Mr. Gray was a real cool dude. All of my math teachers were were pretty cool, except for my geometry teacher, which is self-explanatory. But um, they were all really cool, and Mr. Gray was was just one of those really cool dudes, and. Uh, you know how teachers do the exercise up at the board and they ask for volunteers. And when you really get something in math and you really enjoy it, you kind of are anxious to get up there, right? And, and I remember being so anxious because what we were covering on the board, I knew and I knew how to do. And I kind of, Russ wanted to go up there and show my mathematical prowess, right? I was kind of anxious and I was pretty smart in math only. And, uh, and so I was anxious to get up there. And, and I think Mr. Gray knew how anxious I was, and like a good teacher, he kind of knows all of his students who are getting it and who's not, and so he didn't necessarily want me to come up there as quickly as I wanted to go up there, and so I was just like, ooh, seventh grader, acting like a second grader, ooh, pick me, pick me, and I wanted to go so bad, because I just wanted everybody to see how I could knock it out of the park, right? I wanted to show how smart I was in this particular area of mathematics, and so Mr. Gray just kept passing me over. Uh, let's take Bobby, and let's take Susie, and let's take Debbie, and let's take Sal, let's take everybody but him. I was sitting on the front row, for goodness sake. I knew he could see me. Um, it, it was just a matter of, I was like, I'm being ignored. I can't believe this. And I was so excited. Well, the time came finally for me to get up there. And of course, you know, I'm hanging on to the desk. And it was those desks um, that were, you know, when you get up into middle school and up into junior high, the, the desk that you sit in had the basket underneath, that like kind of a V basket you put the books in. And it just had the arm that comes up right to the desk. So I'm like holding on to the desk the whole time. And he calls me. And as soon as he did, boom, I sprang up and I went right to the floor. And I drug my desk with me up and I was laying up against the, because I was in the front row right by the, right by the wall. And I literally got up and went, ah, and fell and drug my desk because Sheila, who was this very annoying girl who sat behind me, had somehow and for some reason tied my shoelaces to the desk. I was so embarrassed. I mean, you know, seventh grade, you're trying to figure out 
everything. You're like a baby giraffe. You can't hardly walk. You know, you're kind of clumsy and your your voice is pitching up and down like this. Maybe that's why you don't want me to go up. There. And, and, and next thing you know, I'm laying with this desk up on top of my legs. And of course, everybody's laughing. I was so, so humiliated. Um, sin has a way of doing that to us. It, it has a way of making us feel like a total fool when we're before God. Given the circumstances, we may feel compelled at a time not to do what God has made clear, but because of our situation, sometimes we just decide against it. Well, I'll just do this. It's a thing that I need to do anyway, so I'll do it. And when it's all over, God and everyone else sees our foolishness instead of our faith. You know, God made it clear both to Israel and to the king that he would, in fact, we just finished preaching on this, that he would actually bless them and he would actually use their king. Remember First Samuel chapter 12, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he hath done for you. But if you do not, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. He gave him very clear instructions. Look, okay, I wasn't for this king thing. But I gave him to you, and now I'm just telling you, just because you have a king doesn't mean you can't follow me. Just because you've done a wrong thing, let's say this way, it doesn't mean that you can't now do a right thing. Does everybody understand that? And so he made it very clear. Look, I want to use your king, and I want to use you for good if you would simply follow and trust my word. That's all I'm asking you to do. And I want you to do that like the way we would do it, by faith. What, what is faith, actually? It's not some nebulous thing like love we just talk about and it's just out there. With us. There's no, there's no uh, substance to it. Faith, the Bible says, basically is taking God at his word. Lord, if this is what you say to do, the, or say what is, then I believe it. And then acting on that, that's real faith according to the Bible. Does everybody remember that? In James, faith without works is dead being alone. So, so what I do after I trust is representative of my faith that I have in God, if that makes sense. Now, God made it very clear. Look, I want to use you. I want to use your king. I want you now to do the next right thing. Don't dwell because you've done the wrong thing. Now, this chapter of our text is very helpful for what it reveals about obedience, about sin, and the consequences of both. And I want you to take your outline this morning, if you have one, hopefully. And I want you to notice, first of all, the expectations of obedience. The expectations of obedience. Now, uh, to be fair, we need to go farther into our text so that you can see what's going on. The Bible says in verse 8, And Samuel tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. So Samuel had said back in chapter 10, he said, listen, uh, whenever you need to do something, whether it's war or you need to make a decision, here's the... Here's the plan. Um, I want you to tarry in Gilgal for seven days. Once the seven days is there, somewhere within that seven days, I'll come up and then I'll offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings unto the Lord. We'll get God's mind on it and then we'll go to battle or we'll do whatever God wants us to do. But that's the set. The Bible says specifically, uh, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Now, Samuel was clear as to what he was supposed to do in the event of war. Now, we may not know everything about God, but he knows everything about us. You need to remember that. We also know that he has given us his word, and in his word, he's given us the expectations 
about his word. Now, let's just think about that. God set something forward. He expresses to us in the word of God. And now we have an expectation. God says, this is what the Bible says. For instance, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may notice do all the words of his law. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 1, and Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep them and do them. Jesus said it like this. If you love me, keep my commandments. The Lord Jesus also said that when we pray, it was to be along this line. Thy will be done on earth. Or you could say in my life as it is done in heaven. So God, to be clear, has not been unclear about his expectation. Would you agree? If you agree with that, say amen. It, it, we, we have to just we have to just allow it to saturate us and we have to respond. If the Lord has said, look, here's what I've said in my word about whatever marriage, about family, about how you're supposed to live next to a neighbor, about how you're supposed to uh, raise children, about how you're supposed to work at your job. Everything that God's given to us about life and godliness, he says, I put forth and here's my expectation for you. The Lord Jesus said, I want you to be yielded to my will, which comes from my word so that I can bestow the greatest blessings upon you. Now watch. My expectations are set by God. So when God says, this is what I expect, he expects obedience in two different ways. First of all, in spite of temptation. Now remember, God was again clear. Like, by the way, aren't you thankful that he is clear? Aren't you thankful that there, 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 are, there, are so, there is so much in the Bible that says, thou shalt not or thou shalt, period. It's just very clear. In the beginning of time, when God created Adam and Eve, was he not clear about what should be done about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He was extremely clear. In fact, I think you have it in your notes, Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. But in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He was very clear. Well, fast forward to chapter three and the Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any of the creatures of the field. And the serpent said unto Eve, yea, hath God said, thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden that he's provided for you. And she's like, well, no, Adam, because if you go back, God didn't speak to Eve. God spoke to Adam. Now I'll tell you, you know, that there was a communication problem between husband and wife. And that's always been, by the way, sweetheart, they were perfect. <laughs> right. So even they had problems communicating. But he goes, Eve said to the devil. Well, actually, he said not only we're not supposed to eat it, we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, that's a husband just trying to be careful about his wife and trying to make sure, honey, don't even get within arm's distance of this thing because I want to stay as far away from death as I possibly can be. All right. Now, she entertains what? A temptation. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God say, well, you know, if Satan comes along and tempts you, that, just, that, that changes my word. Is that what he did? It's God's expectation that anytime Satan puts a different thought in opposition or contrary to his word, that his word changes? No. Well, what's supposed to change? Our mind. That's what's supposed to change. God says, look, I want you to learn that obedience, my expectation of obedience, is in spite of temptations. We say, 
What do you mean in spite of? Because we're all going to be tempted. Every man is going to be tempted along his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. God again is clear. Not just about sin and temptation. Now about the result. So think about this. Joshua, I'm sorry, Joseph was tempted to be immoral when he was in Egypt. But he obeyed God. Moses was tempted to lie about his heritage. But the Bible says that he obeyed God. Daniel was tempted to stop praying, but he obeyed God. Peter and John were tempted not to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, we command thee that thou speakest not in thy, in this name anymore. And what did they do? The next verse says, and they went out and they preached in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was tempted. In all points like as we are. And not one time when the Spirit of God led Jesus up to the will, into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan, did God's word change. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Jesus proved that in the face of Satan himself, the Bible never changes. He says, thus it is written, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord Almighty. He regurgitated what was in his heart, the word of God. And the word of God, mark it down, does not change. Amen. Which means the expectation of obedience doesn't change. God says, I want you to obey regardless or in spite of temptation. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them to love him. So God's expectation is clear. I want you to obey in spite of temptation. Secondly, I want you to obey in spite of circumstance. In spite of circumstances. Now, I want you to get this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 4 again. And the reason I'm putting it and setting most of this back in the Old Testament is because of the context of our story. Saul is the first Old Testament king in the line of of Israel's kings. Right? Samuel is the last of the judges and is now fulfilling the, 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 the office of uh, prophet and priest as they make this transition. Now, I'm going to go back and show you that God said, not only do I want you to obey in temptation, but when the circumstances surrounding your life change, I want you to obey me anyway, which means I want you to trust me for the circumstances. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart, with all thy soul, notice verse 30, when thou art in what? Tribulation. What is that? My circumstances have changed. So God says, listen, just because you're saved doesn't mean that your life is going to stay peaceful. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a pandemic. Your circumstances are going to change. But it says when, not if, when thou art in tribulation, look at, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. If, even if you turn, or whenever you turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient to his voice. You see that? For the Lord thy God is merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, neither forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swore unto them. So God says, when your circumstances change, all you've got to do is turn and face me and say, okay, Lord, I don't like what's going on over here. I don't like what's going on over here. I don't like what's behind me. I may not even like what's before me, but I'm not moving. I'm not going to change directions. My circumstances have changed, so I'm not going to change my heart. Why? Because your word doesn't change. Because you don't change. And because of that, your love for me and your thoughts about me never change. Hallelujah for that. That being the case, the Bible is clear. 
Proverbs 7, verse 2, keep my commandments and live. And my law as the apple of thine eye, bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Why? Because it's so important. So God says, listen, I want you to keep my word in your heart, not just so you know what I've said, but also so you know my expectations. And even if you do do a wrong thing, it doesn't cancel out everything else that you can still do right. So we see the expectations of obedience. Secondly, we see the errors of disobedience. Now remember, the Bible says in verse 8 that there was a set time that Samuel had appointed. Now let's read on and find out what, what happened. Well, there was a set time that Samuel had appointed. We know that seven days. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now at first glance, you think, well, well, then that justifies it, Dave. Samuel didn't keep his word. He didn't show up. Well, we're going to see here just a little bit how that's not the case. So you've got to kind of keep reading. Well, the Bible says, and Saul, in verse 9, said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of the offering of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. Now, at first glance, again, you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? The sacrifice had to be given, right? I mean, if you're reading the Bible just in your own devotion time, you're reading that, you're going, what's the big deal? The offering's got to be given. What's the big deal whether Saul gives it or Samuel gives it? Ah, now let's go back to the first point. The word of God doesn't change. God's word dictated that there was only a specific person who was allowed to come into his presence with that offering. And it wasn't Saul. So Saul, though he meant to do something right and he meant to do something good, did it wrong because he offered it the wrong way. Same thing true with Uzzah when he touched the when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. He wasn't trying to be disobedient. He just saw what was happening and didn't trust what was going to happen after that and decided to do it his own way. Well, now Saul's in trouble. Now the Bible says Saul goes out to salute Samuel. Now you got You really got to study your Bible. That word salute means he was going to go out to bless Samuel. Does that sound foreign to you at all? Only a prophet or priest could bestow a blessing, not a king. So now Samuel is taking a different posture altogether. So not only has the circumstances changed, now Saul has elevated himself altogether. Let's go to the next passage. The Bible says in verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? Has your parents ever done that to you growing up? What are you doing? Or what have you done? And you're like, uh, nothing. I love to watch, one of my favorite things is to watch videos of kids. And I love it when the kids have like chocolate all over them and on their hands. And the mom comes in and goes, did you eat those cookies? No. I did not. Evidence says something else, right? Or there's like stuff all over the wall and they got ink all over them and they come in and say, did you do that? And they go, no. It's, this is the idea. Samuel knows, by the way, what's happened, okay? You, you think about it. How do you do a burnt offering? Uh, where there's fire, there's smoke. So when he came up, he knew. But what did he want Saul to do? Remember? Huh? Yes! Remember when God said, Adam! Adam! Where are you? Wait a minute. Does God know where Adam is? Absolutely. And God knew what, Samuel, uh, what Saul had done. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, <laughs> I can still see. When I read this passage, I picture myself standing before my dad, 
getting ready to lie. I do. And I remember the turmoil that was happening in my gut and me trying to pass the lie detector test right in front of him. My dad could always say, I could tell when you're lying. And I would be like, I lied to myself in the mirror and I couldn't tell I was lying. I couldn't do it. My dad said, I can always tell when you're lying. Stand there. Now, here's what he says. Well, um, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, he's not done, and, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I love this phrase. It should be highlighted, and you should put a happy face or a happy emoji right next to it. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. If that's not one of the funniest places in the Bible, you have no sense of humor. I, I made myself do it. Okay, now let's, just, let's talk through this just for a few minutes. Jonathan takes a small band, defeats the Philistines for no apparent reason other than Saul wanted to do what he was called to do. Remember, we want a king to go out and fight our battles, so he wants to now please the people and make a name for himself. Now, all of a sudden... The Philistines come up and go, dude, you shouldn't have done that. And everybody in his army goes, he, they're right, you're wrong, we're leaving. Now he's down to 600 people, as it's going to tell us. Now he's down to 600 people, and he says, well, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to wait seven days. So he waits six and three quarters days. And the last two or three hours, Samuel shows up. And now Saul goes, well, the people were leaving. And, and by the way, you weren't here when you said you were going to be here. And if I'm Samuel, I'm going. Okay. So now all of a sudden, the people that he does have are shaking in their boots, 600 left. And he offers a sacrifice. Samuel shows up. By the way, if you'll notice, if you go back and read it carefully, he was going to offer burnt offering and a peace offering, a burnt sacrifice and a peace offering. And he didn't even get to the peace offering. He just finished the burnt sacrifice. And then Samuel shows up in the middle. Put that away. And then he goes out. And he's going to feign himself. He was trying to do a good thing the wrong way. It wasn't his office to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle. That was Samuel's job. Now, here it's worth noting then the errors of all of this disobedience that were committed by Saul. First of all, what's the first error? Impatience. My circumstances have changed. And... Nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. And so I have to do this. Well, impatience is a sin against God's perfect timing. Impatience is a sin against God's perfect timing. Psalm 25, verse 3. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. And that's where Saul was. Why was Saul ashamed? And why was he trying to cover up? Because he transgressed without cause. In his mind, he justified a cause, but God says, no, 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 no. Listen, there is never room for disobedience, even if you're impatient. It's sin against my uh, my perfect timing. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. And he reemphasizes it. Wait, I say, on the Lord. See, we all have felt the pressure cooker of time, haven't we? But impatience doesn't change God's word or his providence. Um, so let me just review this. Did God know what was going on with Saul? Yes or no? Okay. Did God know where Samuel was? 
did God know when Samuel was going to get there? So Saul's left with a choice. I'm either going to do what's right no matter what, because I know that God's timing is perfect. And I know that Samuel will show up because he's a man of God. And God wants to talk to me through Samuel because Samuel says, look, not only am I going to pray for you, I'm not going to cease to teach you the good and right way. So only fear the Lord, revere him, put an awe into your spinal cord and, 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 and serve him in truth with all your heart because of all that he has done. If all the past history in Israel does not teach Saul that you can trust God, I don't know what would have. So he gets impatient. And the, the answer is, yes, God always knows what goes on around us. He always knows when is the last moment, when is the X hour. So his first sin, the first error was impatience. The second error was just fear. Fear. Fear is a sin against God's promise and power. Now remember, the last battle that Saul had, he had 300,000 people. Now he's down to 600. So he really needed God. And isn't it interesting? He said, well... I saw the people were scattered with me and you didn't come and the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash. Now, wait a minute. It doesn't say that they were getting ready to strike. They were just gathering. You see that? It doesn't say that they put the battle in array. It doesn't say they were going to attack. But the perception on a fearful mind can be that which is not reality. Because fear makes fools of us all. So now Saul is acting in fear. Fear has a way of clouding our judgment, doesn't it? Concerning what's right. Fear has a way of clouding our judgment concerning what God says in specific times. So we see the error of fear. Thirdly, it's the error of the flesh. He just listened to the flesh. What is that? When you sin in your flesh, which by the way, all sin is in the flesh, you're sinning against the Holy Spirit of God. Because the flesh and the Spirit are at odds. They will always be at odds because you cannot, listen, you cannot please God in the flesh. Fearful, impatient, now all of a sudden it turns to his flesh and goes, I must do something. And the flesh will always justify doing something wrong in the face of different circumstances. The flesh will always justify doing something wrong in the face of circumstances. Well, Samuel's not here. They have they have so many people, you can't even number them. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 6, horsemen. That's already multiple times over what I have sitting here. It's so 600 people, and they're freaking out. And they're looking to me, so I'll get God in on this, and I'll go, and I'll make the sacrifice. Well, that's the problem. You see, if what I can taste, touch, smell, see, or hear tells me to do something, and it is against what God says, I better listen to God instead. He was just in the flesh. And then letter D, to cover it all up is the worst. I, 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 think it's the, I think it's equally as awful as just committing the sin in verse, or, or letter D, is excuses. Is excuses. Excuses when God nails me to the carpet about my sin. Listen, is a sin against God's wisdom. God knows exactly what you did yesterday. He knows exactly what you said. And when he calls you on the carpet, the worst thing that you can do is say, well, God, you didn't show up when you said you were going to show up. God, I, I was forced to do this. I, I, I had to force myself 
to di- listen to how ridiculous this is. If your children come to you and say this, you'll either video it and laugh it and win $10,000 or you'll be like, what? I, Mom, I forced myself to disobey you. Dad, I forced myself to lie. You would look at your kids and go, get in your bedroom. I'm going to spank that lie right out of your mouth. But, but this is what Samuel does. Uh, Saul does. Saul goes, I literally had to force myself to do this. You didn't come fast enough. People were leaving. The enemy was near. They, are, they were ready to attack, and I know that. And you know me, Samuel. I'm not going to war without getting God on my side, so I obeyed God. If I was Samuel, I'd be like, what planet are you living on? I disobeyed. In fact, he goes to the point of saying, I had to overcome my better judgment in order to do it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt sacrifice. I had to overcome, listen, I'll say it a different way. I had to overcome my personal convictions about who you are. I had to overcome my personal understanding of who you are. I had to overcome my personal uh, convictions, or at the least, Saul is trying to put on that he did it reluctantly. I, I, I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to do it. Something had to be done. And so I just made the executive decision, and you chose wrongly. The excuses are almost as bad as the sin. But the question is, does that change it anything? The fact that you feel compelled to do that, which you know clearly that God said not to do it, and what his expectation is, does that change it? The answer is no. No crisis could ever justify such an offense against God. No crisis. Samuel did show up. And God always shows up. But that doesn't justify what I do in the meantime. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Do you have that in your notes? Romans chapter 8 verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. You see that? The carnal mind says, I really don't care what the Bible says right now. This is what I feel I need to do. I feel I need to do this instead of obey God. I feel I need to say this instead of obey God. I feel I need to think this right now about that person instead of obey God and think on things above and not give myself to that. I feel, I feel, I feel. You know what? I, I, I want you to understand my feelings don't change God's word. It doesn't. My, I'm not, you're not, listen to me. By the way, I'm thankful this is here. Because when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, that conversation is not going to happen. That conversation is recorded on this earth because this earth is the only place that that will ever happen. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't say, well, I had to do this. You won't say, you don't understand what it's like to have circumstances so bad that you can't obey. You don't understand what it's like to be tempted in such a way that your flesh just pulls you in such a way. You're not going to say that. Why? Because the Bible is clear. God does. He knows. So Saul here is saying, my carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. And because it's the flesh, neither it, neither can be. 
So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It was impossible for Saul to please God by trying to do the right thing because he was in the flesh. And he was doing it the wrong way. Does everybody follow that? So we see the errors in disobedience. Now I'm going to throw this in real quick because it's very clear from Scripture. Then number three, we see an expression about sin. So he says all this, and it's almost like, I'm completely giving conjecture here, all right? But the way I read it, because I've read it so many times, it's almost like Samuel, either with his visage, maybe with his visage perhaps, is saying, are you done? Are you done giving excuses? Because I want to tell you now what's the problem. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now, listen, now this is what, talk about missing out. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel for how long? Forever. God had a divine plan set out, laid in front of Saul. All he had to do was fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider all that he's done. And we don't know what he's going to do. All we're entrusted with is what he wants us to do now. And then Saul throws it all away. Why? Because of temptation? Because of circumstances? Because his feelings were so compelling he had to overcome all that he knew about God? Yeah, that's exactly what he tries to say. Now Samuel says, I'm sorry. Look at verse 14. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Look up here. For a guy that's trying to establish his kingdom to hear those words, you and I both know, if you're a man, you know that is devastating to you. Saul at first didn't want the job, took the job, tried to do the job. Circumstances changed. He made a gut call based on feeling instead of truth. And now everything is torn apart. And we're going to see, by the way, the spiraling of this event in the following chapters. You know it would be devastating. Look what it says. Thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man... After his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because, and he reiterates it, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. It's interesting. He doesn't say what God commanded all of you. Points the finger. Says it's you. Here's an expression, two expressions about sin that I take away from this. First of all. God's saying there's no such thing as a small sin against me. There's no such thing as a small sin. So does Scripture back that up? It does actually. Revelation 21.8, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire, which is the second death. There's no such thing as a small sin. Can we understand that this morning? You you agree with that? You agree with God? There's no such thing as a small sin. It's the devil that wants us to think that some sins are not as bad as others. Now, let's just follow this line because you need to be able to reason in your mind. If that's true, and some sins are worse than the others, then which sins did Jesus die for and which sins did he not? Well, he just died for the really bad ones. You know, the capital ones. Did he? Did he die for liars? Yeah. Did he die for just the people that say, and, and, and this is where we get it all wrong. I just don't believe in God. Well, oh, yeah. 
That's the biggest fool of all. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And that's sin. So see, there's no such thing as a small sin against God. Those that disobey the commandments of God do foolishly for themselves because sin is folly and sinners are the greatest fools. There's no sin that's too small. Secondly, there's a consequence to every sin. There's always a consequence. Now, it doesn't mean that God's not going to forgive us, but sometimes he doesn't change the consequences. Does that make sense? James 1.14, every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When it's conceived, it brings forth sin. When it's finished, it brings forth death. Now, our sin might not bring physical death as a consequence. But when we sin, there is one thing that dies immediately, and you need to write this in your notes, our usefulness to God. There's one thing that always dies when we sin at that moment without being forgiven in confession. Now, just follow the logic here. It's our usefulness. Saul lost his kingdom, and he would no longer be used by God. Why? Because of sin. If we disobey the Lord, we make ourselves unclean instruments. Right? The Bible says, purge yourself of these. So the Lord cannot use a disobedient person to proclaim obedience. He cannot use a sinful person to proclaim holiness. He cannot use a wicked person to proclaim righteousness. He cannot use an immoral person to proclaim morality. He can't use an unjust person to proclaim justice. He can't use a foul-mouthed person to proclaim spiritual truths. He cannot use an uh, irresponsible person to proclaim responsibility or a thief to proclaim honesty or a liar to proclaim truth. He cannot. The cross proves that God hates not some sin, but all sin. And he died to save us from the sin. And he proved because he proved that the key to victory, listen carefully, over sin lies in obedience to the father. At any time from the fact from the point when Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan all the way to Calvary, Satan was waiting for the moment that Jesus would say enough. I can't do this anymore. His last cry was, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, if my circumstances don't change and I go to the cross and you see that is the only way and you and I both know that it is, then I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for all that I've witnessed, for all that I've experienced, because everyone coming after me is going to experience it. And I want them to know that you can be free from sin by obeying God. That is the key to victory. It's not by saying, I'm not going to watch, and I'm not going to say, and I'm not going to listen to, or I'm not going to go. It's instead, I'm going where God wants me to go. I'm saying what God wants me to say. I'm going to listen to what God wants me to listen. I'm going to watch what God wants me to watch. And in the meantime, I'm safe. Because I'm obeying the Lord. I cannot make excuses. Write this statement down. Instead of excuses, try repentance. Do you think it would have gone differently if Samuel would have said, Saul, what have you done? And he would have said, I've sinned against God. I got impatient. God, forgive me. Samuel, pray for me. Pray. Ask God to forgive me. I've sinned. I've offered burnt sacrifices. I got fearful. I confessed my fear. I confessed my pride. I was completely out of line. Don't you think that God would have said, okay? Absolutely. And I'll prove it later on because it's not till much later on that Godly finally says, that's it, Saul. I'm giving you a bad spirit because you have finally proven to me 
you are out of control. It's interesting. As we'll look at the life of Saul later on. See, when faced with the truth, am I prepared for the Lord Jesus to drag into light every wrong thing that I've done? That I've done. It's exactly what happened. It is just there when God does that, that he comes into my life. Wherever I know, Oswald Chambers wrote, wherever I know I am unclean, God will put his feet. Wherever I think I am clean, he will withdraw them. Repentance, he said, does not bring a sense of sin, but a sense of unutterable untrustworthiness. God said, Saul, I can't trust you. I gave you my word. I gave you the law. I gave you this kingdom. And by the way, if God could save Israel with 300 men from uh, with Gideon, I think it's within God's realm to save Israel from a multitude with 600. Don't you agree? Because Moses told him, look, you obey me. One of you goes in the name of God. 10,000 will take flight. Okay. So if I have 600 and 10,000 are going to go take flight, follow the math, 600,000. And they only had half of that. The fact of the matter is, there was all kinds of opportunity. But he, instead of repenting, gave excuses. We see an expression about sin, and that's that God doesn't bless it. Especially when we ignore it. Now let me give you number four and we're done. The last thing we see here in verse 14 is an examination of our own obedience. And verse 14 is one of the sweetest phrases couched in a statement of judgment. Verse 14, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. Here's the phrase. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. Now, to be honest, because I'm a preacher, I don't know what what would have been worse pain for God to say you're no longer going to be king or to say without saying it, it's obviously that you don't have a heart for me. You guys know me who've known me. I think I just start bawling. That God could look into my heart and say, your heart's not for me. So I've had to look for someone else. You're not that guy. You may sit on king, as king, but your heart is not in it for me. That'd tear me up. I've sought for a man after my own heart. This tells us several things and we're done. Please just be patient with me. Number one, God sees past the perfunctory. He, he, he sees beyond that which is just ritual and mechanical. Saul wasn't trying to get a hold of God. He was just doing whatever it took to get the circumstances to change in his favor. God didn't accept the sacrifice because it wasn't done in the right way. Scripture would support that. Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God. Then the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we done done right things? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Look, Lord, we've done all this. And then I will have to profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, God, God, you got to be careful here. Does God care that you're here today? Absolutely. But it's very, very apparent to me 
that though you may be here, if your heart is not, God cares for that more. Why? Because he's seeking after that. God sees past the perfunctory. He sees past this. To what? What's in my heart? Secondly, obedience to God begins there. It begins. Obedience to God begins in the heart. Jesus said, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you, if you keep my commandments, there's the obedience. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. What, what compelled Jesus to obey the Father? His love for the Father. That's why he said, if you love me, that's what you'll do as well. Even as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Ephesians 6.6 6 is not with eye service as men pleasers, but the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the, if you know what's it heart if your heart for god is not in it the question is is it then real obedience is it real obedience because what god wants is my heart psalm 119 verse 10 with my whole heart have i sought thee oh let me not wander from thy commandments thy word have i hid in my heart that i might not sin against thee lastly let her see Our true heart is only revealed through pressure. Our true heart is only revealed through pressure. See, God saw, he saw all he needed to see in the heart of the king that day. What he saw was enough. His heart wasn't in it for God. He became unuseful and it only took him, listen, a little over a year to get there. Remember, at the end of chapter 12, Samuel gives this great opportunity door for the children of Israel and the king. And look at verse 1 of of chapter 13. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two. Somewhere in his second year, he just lost all that God gave him. He lost his heart for the Lord. He lost his desire to obey God. He lost the word of God. What came in instead? Feelings. Circumstances. And what did it reveal? Saul's heart. That's what pressure does. It doesn't matter if it's work. It doesn't matter if it's home. It doesn't matter if it's COVID. Pressure reveals the character, reveals the heart. God says, look, I, I want to help you, Saul, but your heart's not in it, so I've got to make you unuseful. You know, that was Paul's greatest fear. His greatest fear is, after I have preached to others, that I myself might be a castaway. That word means to be taken and set up on a shelf and no longer touched because what you've done has not been for the Lord's sake. It's been for your sake. Paul, if you don't get your flesh in order, you're going to become a castaway. And that was his example. Someone, listen, whom he was named after. Because before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. It's a real thing. God wants us to live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. In Hebrews 10, 38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. 
Hebrews 11 and verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Whoa, wait a minute. So maybe that's where it lies with Saul. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now we know why he said thou hast done foolishly when he could have said thou hast done faithfully. Saul, you waited for me to the X hour. Saul, because of your faith, these 600 men are going to carry you to victory by the hand of Almighty God, and I'm going to get all the glory, and I'm going to have a name in Israel, not you. And Saul could have said, yes, that's what I want, Lord, your name to be here, not my name. But instead, Jonathan gets the garrison, gives the garrison a victory, and Saul publishes his name. Verse 14 Again, the Lord hath sought him a man. Did you know that God still looks for someone to use like that? He still looks for someone to show himself strong through. Someone that he can demonstrate that his grace is sufficient. That he's always on time. Someone to prove that God can be trusted. Are you willing to live that way? Because that's the challenge. You see, someone said God's way of of answering his people's prayers is not by removing their pressure but by increasing their strength to bear it. The pressure, he said, is often the fence between the narrow way of life and the broad way to ruin. And if our Heavenly Father were to remove it, it might be at the sacrifice of a greater blessing. And you feel the pressures of life surrounding you, and it seems like those who should be standing with you are fleeing the scene like the armies of Israel. Remember this. You will do far more with God by faith than you will ever by living like a fool. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for, Lord, how clear you are. And my prayer today is that your word would have a greater honor and position in our lives. My prayer today, Father, is that your Holy Spirit would take what we've heard and learned and God, you'd discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. I'm so grateful for the truth. And God, if there's someone in here like me, uh, it hurts sometimes. And today may even be that day. Today may be a day, Lord, where instead of making excuses to you today, we need to confess and we need to repent. And so I pray today that we would just allow you, Lord, to speak to our hearts as we roll the doors open. We, we, we pray that you would do a work of grace and mercy and forgiveness as we repent and confess. As we, Lord, look back and perhaps say, you know, Lord, I, I haven't walked in my integrity. I've allowed circumstances. I've allowed temptation to move me. I don't want to be moved anymore. I want to stay upon my God. With heads bound and eyes closed, would you stand together with me as the piano begins to play? And I wonder if you just take some time this morning with the Lord. You may feel compelled to come to this altar. You may not be ready to do that at this time. But right where you are, would you at least find a prayer bench, find a place to perhaps kneel, find a place to come to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I, I, I feel like I have not done all that I'm supposed to do. I, I feel like I've been harboring sin God, I've been giving you excuses. I've been giving myself excuses. and I need to repent and ask you to forgive me. I want to come clean today, God.
What does God see in our hearts this morning? Because He sees them. And what He sees could be the difference between being used and not. I know that every parent here wants to be used to help their children. I know God wants to use every church member. Every one of us have a spiritual responsibility. All He wants you to do is trust Him. Would you trust Him today? Would you just trust Him with all of your heart? Take your own understanding and just throw it out the window. It doesn't have to make sense in order to obey. Gracious Father, we thank you again for speaking to our hearts. We ask today, God, that will you help us to obey? God, even in our weakness, we can't do, we can't be without you. So we confess our dependence upon you and we trust that you will have your way with us. Please bless the truth in our hearts now. Bless these that have listened so carefully. Thank you for their attention. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.